0: CHAPTER Seven OF THE RAT RACE BY J. FRANKLIN This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tompkins, Wasson, and Cohn maintained severe-looking offices on one of the upper floors of Number 1 Wall Street. The rooms were carefully furnished in dark wood and turkey-red upholstery, in a style calculated to reassure elderly ladies of great wealth that the firm was careful and conservative. The girl at the reception desk looked as though she had graduated with honor from Wellesley in the class of 1920 and still had it. pince-nez and condescension, but she was thoroughly up to date in her office technique. "Oh, Mr. Tompkins," she murmured in a clear low voice, "there's a gentleman waiting to see you in the customers' room, a Mr. Harcourt. He's been here since 10 o'clock this morning. He's had no lunch." I inquired. She shook her head. I clucked my tongue. We can't have our customers starve to death, can we? Send out for a club sandwich and some hot coffee. Give me five minutes to take a look at my mail and then send him in. When the food arrives, send that in too. She blinked her hazel eyes behind her pince-nez to show that she understood and i walked confidently down to the end of the corridor to where a mr tompkins stared at me conservatively from a glazed door my office lived up to my fondest dream of winnie it was an ingenious blend of the eighteen seventies and functional furniture like a cocktail of port wine and vodka there were electric clocks a silenced stock ticker in a glass-covered mahogany coffin an elaborate sheraton radio with short-wave reception tuned in on wqxr and desks and chairs and divans and a really good steel engraving showing general grant receiving lee's surrender at appomattox court house with a chart underneath to explain who was who in the picture the desk, I was glad to note, was bare except for an electric clock calendar, which told me that it was 3.12 p.m. of April 4th, 1945, and a handsome combination humidor, cigarette case, and automatic lighter in aluminum and synthetic tortoiseshell. A glance out the window gave me a reassuring glimpse of the spire of Trinity Church. There was a single typed memo on the glass top of the desk, which read, mr harcourt ten thirteen a m would not state business we'll wait i pushed one of the array of buttons concealed underneath the edge of the desk and a door opened to admit a largish blonde in a tight-fitting sweater yes mr tompkins please have mr harcourt sent in i said and when he comes bring your notebook and take a stenographic record of our conversation and uh what's your name she raised her well-plucked eyebrows. I'm Eleanor Roosevelt. My parents named me Arthur Jean, after both of them. Arthur Jean. Miss Briggs to you. Very well, Miss Briggs. Tell Mr. Harcourt I'll see him now. A moment later, she reappeared holding a card in her fingers as though it was a live cockroach. Sure you want to see this? She asked. The card read, Mr. A.J. Harcourt special agent federal bureau of investigation u s department of justice u s courthouse foley square new york twenty three new york of course i replied i have been expecting him for some time a j harcourt was neat but not gaudy a clean-cut hart schaffner and marks tailored man of about thirty-five with that indefinable family resemblance to J. Edgar Hoover which always worries me about the FBI. "'Good afternoon, Mr. Harcourt,' I said pleasantly. "'And what can I do for the FBI?' Harcourt shook my hand, took a seat, refused a cigarette, and cast a doubtful glance over his shoulder at Arthur Jean Briggs, who was working semi-silently away at a stenotype machine. "'Oh, that's my secretary,' I explained. "'I always have her take a record of important conversations in this office. "'I hope the machine doesn't disturb you, Mr. Harcourt.' "'If it's all right with you, it's all right with me,' he said grudgingly. "'I thought perhaps you'd rather have this private.' "'Not in the least,' I replied. "'Miss Briggs is the soul of discretion, and I can imagine nothing we could talk about "'that I wouldn't want her to hear.' The G-man looked as though he was worrying over whether he ought to call Washington for permission." They hadn't taught him this one in the FBI Academy of fingerprinting, marksmanship, shadowing, and wiretapping. By the way, Mr. Harcourt, I added, I just learned as I came in that you've been waiting for me since ten this morning. It's about three now, so I took the liberty of sending out for a sandwich and some coffee for you. I thought you might like a bite of lunch while you were talking with me. The special agent looked as surprised as though he had found Hoover's fingerprints on the murder gun. But he nodded gamely. "'Here it is now,' I remarked, as there was a knock on the door, and a knowing-looking boy placed an appealing trayload of sandwiches, pickles, and coffee in front of Mr. Harcourt. "'Now, you go right ahead and eat your lunch,' I urged. "'Ask me for any information in my possession, and you shall have it. "'And, of course, I'll have Miss Briggs send a complete transcript of our talk to you at FBI headquarters by registered mail. First of all, if you don't mind, would you show me your official identification?' and let Miss Briggs take down the number and so on. It's always best to put these things in the record, isn't it? The G-man gulped, and produced a battered identity card, complete with fingerprints, number, Hoover's signature, and a photograph which would have justified his immediate arrest on suspicion of bank robbery. I imagine, Mr. Harcourt, I remarked, that you've had plenty of time in the last five hours to question members of my staff about whatever it is you think they might know about my business.' He looked up almost pathetically. "'I asked a few questions,' he admitted. "'This is just an informal inquiry, nothing for grand jury action—' "'Yet. I didn't like that last word. "'Do you think I ought to call my lawyer in before I proceed with our talk?' I asked. "'I resent your reference to grand jury action.' So far, I don't even know what you wish to see me about, and you have just made a libelous statement in front of a reliable witness. Is that the way J. Edgar Hoover trains his Gestapo? I, well... Come on, Harcourt, let's get on with it, I interrupted. I'm a busy man, and you've wasted five hours of the time my taxes help to pay for just waiting to take more of my time. He pulled a black leather notebook out of his pocket and consulted it. The Bureau was asked to interrogate you, Mr. Tompkins, on behalf of another government agency. Which? Internal Revenue? WPB? The SEC? No, sir, it was none of those. I'm not at liberty to tell you which one. I am simply instructed to ask you what you know about USS Alaska and naval dispositions in the North Pacific. I leaned back and laughed. <laughs> now I get it, I said. That's O-N-I, and that triple-plated ass Randy Tolan, trying to win the war in the barrooms, New York. It all goes back to a dream I had while I was dozing at the Pond Club Monday afternoon. Something about the USS Alaska being blown up off the Aleutians. Tolan was there when I woke up, and I passed a few remarks about my dream before I was fully awake, if you know what I mean. That's all there is to it, Mr. Harcourt. The special agent made a number of hand tracks in his notebook. Thank you very much, Mr. Tompkins, he said. No doubt you'll be able to explain things if my chief wants to call you in. I don't think my chief believes in dreams. Not that kind of dream. Not in wartime. I laughed again. I'm afraid I can't help that. So far as I am concerned, the FBI can believe in my dream or stick it in the files. Harcourt coughed. It's not easy working with O.N.I., or other intelligence outfits, he said. They never tell us anything. The trouble with your dream seems to be that the general public isn't supposed to know that the USS Alaska is in commission, and that the Navy Department has had no word from her since last Saturday. Don't let that worry you, I said. If she was anywhere near the Kurils, she'd keep radio silence, especially off Paramashiro. Oh! harcourt remarked oh and i didn't say anything about paramashiro thank you mr tompkins we'll be in touch with you off and on he rose very politely shook hands again thanked me for the food nodded to miss briggs and made a definite grade a exit his steps died away down the corridor miss briggs waited until he was out of earshot then turned to me you goddamn fool she said fondly. You had him bluffed until you talked about Paramashiro. Why did you admit anything? I looked up at her broad, pleasant face. So you've made a monkey out of me. I alibied you up and down. Listen, Winnie, the FBI have been all over the joint since early yesterday. We were warned not to whisper a word to you. There was an agent waiting to grill me when I got home last night. I told him you'd been spending the weekend with me. You told him... I was startled. Sure, why not? He wasn't interested in my morals. I told him about our place up in the fifties, and gave you a complete alibi from Friday close of business until Monday noon, and now you have to make like a Nazi with the ships in the Pacific. Say, what is it you've supposed to have done, kissed MacArthur? Damned if I know Miss Briggs, that's part of the trouble. Lay off that Miss Briggs stuff. That was to punish you for giving me the fish-eye when you came in. I'm your Arthur Jean, and the market's closed, so you'd better catch the subway uptown with me, and I'll cook you a steak dinner at our place. This was too deep water for hesitation, so I took the plunge. Taking my hat and coat, I told a genteel receptionist that I'd be back in the morning i waited for arthur jean at the foot of the elevators and followed her lead into the east side subway and up to the fifty-first street station on to our place it was very discreet an old brownstone front converted into small apartments there was no doorman and an automatic elevator prevented any intrusive check on the comings and goings of the tenants the third-floor front had been made into a pleasant little two-room suite, a master's bedroom—why not mistresses, I thought, with a double bed, dresser and chairs, and an array of ducks which revealed the true Tompkins touch. There was a small, sitting dining-room as well, and a kitchenette with a satisfactory array of bottles in the frigidaire, and a reasonable amount of groceries. Arthur Jean took off her hat and coat, fixed me a good stiff drink, and then disappeared into the bathroom. After a good deal of splashing and gurgling, she reappeared, clad in maroon satin pajamas. There, she said, now I feel better. I smiled at her. Here's to Arthur Jean, I said. Nuts to Arthur Jean, she replied. How about Winnie? You've always been swell to me, and you know it. I don't care if you're a louse or a souse. You can always come to me any time you're in trouble, and I'll fix you up. Now you're in trouble with the cops. So how about me helping you, huh? You're a good kid, I said truthfully, for Arthur Jean was indeed one of God's own sweet tarts. The truth is, I'm in all kinds of a jam. You see, I can't seem to remember what I've been doing before last Monday. It's sort of like loss of memory, only worse. This FBI thing is only one of my headaches. She looked at me questioningly. So you don't remember where you were before Monday? She asked. She slouched across the room, leaned down, and gave me a hearty kiss. Will that help you remember? It was like I told the detective. You and me were right here in this place over Easter, and don't forget it. I sighed. I liked Arthur Jean, though she was as corned beef and cabbage, to Germaine's caviar and champagne. Okay, I said, I won't forget it. boy. she agreed. Now that we've got that settled, suppose you tell me where the hell you really were over the weekend. You stood me up Friday night, and today's the first time I've set eyes on you since you left the office Friday morning. Boy, you may have some explaining to do to the FBI, but it's nothing to what you've got to explain to Mama. End of chapter 7